Thank you for tuning in, everybody. This is Jerry Wan, your host of the Asian Americans. Today, we're going to have a conversation with Vaidehi Gadjar, who is an editor from Brown Girl Magazine. And before we get to my conversation with Vaidehi, I want to highlight an Asian American-owned business, and that is Pup Wash 911. It's Jessica Huang's business, and she's from Southern California. And they are usually, in normal times, a mobile dog grooming service. But she's had a pivot, like so many of us have had to do,、uh, given all that's going on. So they've got a very cool online shop setup with a lot of accessories and toys, and、uh, even clothes for dogs. So check her out. It's pupwash nine one one dot com. That's p u p w a s h nine one one dot com. Thanks, Jessica, for being a listener and supporting the Asian Americans. And here now is my conversation with Vaidehi. Hey everybody! Welcome to the Asian Americans. This is your host Jerry Wan. Hope you're staying safe. Hope you're staying healthy. And for the love of God, I hope you're staying inside. Everybody, we're recording this April 10th. So, depending on where you are in the country, depending on where you're in the world,、uh, we are going through various stages of this pandemic. And however you're going through it,、uh, we hope that you are not only staying physically healthy, but mentally and emotionally healthy, and that you are taking this time to connect with old friends, meeting new ones. And surrounding yourself with content, both written, audio, video, however you are, with uplifting stories to help you get through these times, because the reality is, is that it sucks. And if you you watch the news all day, it probably will get you down. So that is a very fun way to introduce our guest today. And Baidehi Gajar is an editor with Brown Girl Magazine. Uh, she does a lot of other work in the health、um, healthcare space and in helping young folks、um, get through their lives,、uh, both emotionally and mentally. And so, if the word Brown Girl Magazine sounds familiar to you,、uh, it's because we had、uh, co-founder and uh, chief editor uh, Trisha Sakujawalia as a guest during our launch week, which now seems like forever ago, but it was just five weeks ago. And she was gracious enough to join us that week and share her story of how Brown Girl Magazine came about and what her vision is for the future. So today we get to hear from the perspective of Vaidehi,、uh, who writes for Brown Girl Magazine and now is an editor. So Vaidehi, welcome to the Asian Americans. Thank you so much for having me, Jerry. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's fun. I, I think you know,、uh, in the area of content creation for us, by us, which. Uh, we do here, and you do at BGM. It's an interesting time to put out content. I think because one, I think it all stemmed from sharing our stories that we didn't really have growing up, and it's this frustration of seeing stereotypes, very negative stereotypes, portrayed、um, by people that look like us. And so, you know, thanks to the internet, and you know, thanks to、um, all these resources that we have, we're able to really craft our own stories. I'm very curious to learn about your upbringing and you know how the、uh, the Gajar family、uh, became Dash American or Dash, however you ended up here, and、um, share with us a little bit about your earlier years growing up. So I'm actually not American born. I was born in Canada、um, back in '95, so I'm 25 now.、Um, I moved to the states when I was about two years old、um, because of my dad's job. Um, that was back when computer, the computer industry was really sort of booming, and so、um, for us being immigrants, it was kind of you know you go wherever 
the money is wherever, you know, you can make a living. And so back then for us, it was America and that's where, where we decided to come. And, um, I would say that, you know, I pretty much grew up like any, um, any other Asian kid, you know, kind of just being put into all the different sorts of, um, extracurriculars and everything. Like, you got to have your sports, you got to have dance. I did everything. Um, you had to be a well-rounded child right from the beginning. And, um, you know, as I got older, I definitely, you know, lost a few of those hobbies that I was put into. Um, I got very serious about dance kind of like halfway through my life. And, um, I actually carried that completely all the way to the end. And I, um, had my last recital when I turned 18. Um, and so I formally trained in Indian classical dance because of that. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I grew up. I, I didn't, you know, um, have much sort of experience with writing other than writing in school. Um, you know, being a part of clubs and stuff in school, all of that, but never, you know, actually being interested in writing or, you know, knowing that hey, there's actually a thing for this. Like, you can actually do this. You you brought up something that I don't think any of our guests so far have touched upon, which is hobbies weren't hobbies. Hobbies were actual means to an end of making your college application look better than the next <laughs> similar looking Asian kid, right? So, um, I mean, I, I grew up, uh, you know, I, I grew up a part of my life here in Orange County in California. And uh, my brother and I were part of the local um, swim team not school affiliated, mm-hmm. but a swim team. And it wasn't, you know, sure it was for exercise and it was a thing to do, but, um, you know, uh, we never like participated in the actual competitions. We just went to practice every day. And, yeah. and so, which is when I tell people that they're like, wait a minute, why would you join it? You had practice daily, but like you didn't do meets. And I was like, yeah, it was just a thing to do. And, and so, you know, I, I think it's, we get, you know, it, it's, our, our parents loved us in their own way and they wanted to, one of the best for us, but I think it was do that well and enough, but don't do it so well that you can make a career out of it. We still want right. you to pursue academics. So was there, it, it sounded like it was dance for you. Um, yeah. Right. Like you, you were probably, that was not, I mean, you didn't pursue dance as a profession, um, maybe to your parents' delight, but you know, how, how many folks out there really love something, but they were discouraged from really doing it because it's mixed messages, right? Like we want you to go to practice every day. We want you to be good enough, um, maybe oh, yeah. even good enough to get a college scholarship out of it, but don't do it so well that it will give you um, a crazy idea not to pursue XYZ education. Exactly. So <laughs> I, I think that's really, really funny. Um, what um, She said you moved to America from Canada at age two. Where did you spend most of your life growing up? And you know, were there many other Indian or Asian kids in your schools? So the two places that I guess I would say that I've spent the most time were here in South Carolina and then before that um, in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, when I was in school, it especially back in like the 2000s, especially when I was in Memphis, there was a very select few um, Asian, especially Indian kids um, in my schools. And I think part of the reason for that from around second 
actually kindergarten to second grade was because I went to a private school and it was the only private school in the area and it was also a Catholic school. Mm. So <laughs> not many, you know, Indian parents would want to send um, their kids to a Catholic school because, you know, the number one kind of fear is, oh, they'll try to convert my child. Like, I don't want that. <laughs> and <laughs> I know this like kind of might sound like crazy to a lot of like listeners, but you know, Indians, a lot of Indians are Hindu. So like for us, like religion is such a huge, like part of who we are. So like, of course, like your parents don't want you to like lose that side of yourself. Um, when I moved here, I definitely saw that there was a much bigger Indian community. Um, I wouldn't say that, you know, back in Memphis, there wasn't, you know, there was a small Indian community. It was just, in the areas that I was living in, everyone kind of seemed to be in different areas. And so I would have, you know, friends that were Indian outside of school, but they wouldn't be the ones that I had in school. Most of my friends in school were either white, African-American, or Asian to, you know, and that was like very rare. Um, But pretty much all my friends, that were Indian were all outside of school. You went to uh, University of South Carolina and you studied biology. Yes. Um, I guess that checks the box for many parents. <laughs> um, your 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 uh, main profession still is within the healthcare space. It is. Yes. Um, but your it, it sounds like, and from you know my getting to know you is is writing, and not only just writing, but writing about us and writing for us and in particular you know south asian woman through your work involved with brown girl magazine yeah talk to me about your love for writing independent of the topic and maybe a point in your life where you found your voice in that moment of holy crap like i love this you know it's very interesting because i always when i'm asked this question i frame it in the sense of you know i was struggling really bad and I found writing um but there's actually one incident that comes to mind when I kind of think of you know how writing has affected my life and I remember I was in fifth grade and this is much much before you know brown girl even considering writing um but I remember being in fifth grade and we had to write an essay about I don't even remember what the original topic was. It was some kind of storytelling assignment that we had. And the first time that my teacher had given us the assignment, I couldn't think of anything to write. And so for pretty much the entire class period, maybe like with the exception of 15 minutes, I kind of just sat there and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so by the time class was over, I had nothing written. And, you know, normally I think a lot of teachers would turn around and be like, okay, that's it. Like, you're not getting a grade for this, whatever. But my teacher turned around and she said, you know, it's fine. You didn't, you know, write anything this time. Cool. But what I want you to go home and do is write an entire story for me, bring it back, and I want to see it. Well, as it turns out, when I came back with, you know, my entire story written, 
She actually decided to read it to the entire class. She sent it to the principal's office. And she was super, super pleased with it. I got 100 on. I still remember it. Um, I actually have it still in my drawer because I haven't. Like, I, I still hold on to that. Um, but, you know, looking back, I think that was, like, the moment where I was, like, wow, like, I actually did something, you know? Um, like before, like all of the, you know, getting involved in the actual journalism world, you know, having that feeling as a kid of, hey, I accomplished something. Like, I think just that moment is like, I think the the greatest defining moment beyond like everything else. That is beautiful. Um, and right now, given what we're going through, it's even a more important time to recognize our teachers who are dealing with their own lives at home, but also thrown into this world of use technology to teach your kids as, as good as you can. <laughs> and I, I think many of us can visualize a moment or even many moments where a, a teacher through that moment for you, where um, she elevated your work and recognized you for it. And to this day, it's still playing an important part in your life. Um, countless moments like that from all the teachers and all of our, you know, uh, caretakers throughout our lives. So, um, and for, for all the teachers, um, unspoken heroes, obviously, and, um, through the challenges that you guys are going through, thank you. Um, I think it's when you look back, you can point to that when you're young and you have those moments, you really, you don't know. And that's okay. That's, that's humanity. Like you don't know what kind of impact that's going to have in your life. And, I think particularly writing, um, as we were talking about, you know, do hobbies, but don't take it too seriously. Mm -hmm. I, I think writing is one of those things or, you know, storytelling is one of those things that um, we never, at least for myself, it, it goes into the bucket of, yeah, that's cute. But like, can you really make money doing that? Exactly. And so, exactly. Yeah, but, you know, when, when, you, when you look at, you know, it's like, oh, my God, these newspaper, you know, writers and authors of books and essays and poets and you know, it almost, unfortunately, is always in the frame of people with privilege to do this on the side as a hobby. Exactly. Or, you know, uh, uh, the newspaper author is, or newspaper uh, writer lives a very meek and poor lifestyle because mm -hmm. it doesn't pay. And, and so I think in the frame of the immigrant experience, many of those opportunities were not presented to us in the right way of, you can do this and there's no shame in making money from it. And exactly. fact, you should be able to, right? Like, so it's it's fascinating that you found your voice that early. And yet, for, for all the right reasons and potentially maybe some interesting reasons, you know, many of us still chose traditional paths in formal education. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so let so you started writing for Brown Girl in college. Um, how yes. did you discover them? And how long did it take for you to raise your hand and say, I want to be a part of the voice and not just a customer? So I discovered Brown Girl probably around 2015, 2016. So about five or six years ago now. Um, I had actually just come across them on Facebook and I had, you know, just like you do with most Facebook ads, you kind of sometimes click through them, but you don't always <laughs> click through them. Um, and, you know, 
the few times that I had clicked through um, the ads that I saw, I was like, there's, there's like, you know, South Asian creatives, like that's a thing. Um, because like at the time, like even, you know, in my immediate friend circle or anything, like no one was doing anything creative. It wasn't like, you know, like, oh, you have so many like South Asian influencers or YouTubers or that was all just like kind of starting off back then for a lot of, you know, South Asian um, YouTubers, creatives, writers, whatever. Um, but at the time, I actually, um, probably a year or so before that, I had started writing for the Odyssey Online, which is um, another sort of online publication, but it's very, you know, broad. It's not geared towards like a certain community or anything like that. And I joined them thinking like, hey, I enjoy writing, you know, might as well try and get some experience. So after I discovered Brown Girl, I was like, you know, I think I'd like to, you know, explore my own identity more. Because, you know, with the Odyssey, I was finding that, you know, it's great to have a voice now. But at the same time, it was like, I was around people that didn't necessarily understand my identity. And it's very hard to kind of tell your story to people that don't understand it. And so that's when I really decided to definitely, definitely try to get into Brown Girl. And I remember I sat down. This was probably like maybe October, November of 2016. And I sent in the application and I... I closed out on my computer and I was like, okay, I don't know why I did this. I'm pretty sure I'm never going to get a response. And it took forever. It took literally four to five months for me to hear back. And finally I did. And they were like, hey, we got your application. Would you be interested in writing for us? And I freaked out. I was so happy. And I was like, heck yes. Like, no questions asked. I'm ready. Like, tell me what you want me to do. What was the first thing that you wrote for them? I guess let me go back. What was in the application? Oh, gosh. I don't even remember what's in the application. You had to submit a, a piece? Yes, I did. So a lot of, you know, what I wrote about um, back in um, the Odyssey was had it had to do with mental health because at the time, like, that was my biggest struggle. And that was the, I think, biggest part of my life that I was um, struggling to voice. And so when I got to Brown Girl, that, you know, carried over. Um, so the very first piece I think I wrote was an open letter about suicide. Why was that topic important to you? It was especially important to me because of the fact that that was something that I was actively navigating through at the time. And it was something that, you know... I couldn't really talk about it like face to face with anybody, but when I wrote it out, it was somehow an easier way for me to deal with it. And so, and when I pitched it to um, one of the old founders, um, she she was like, "Yeah, you should definitely write that." And um, 
that, you know, ended up becoming my first piece and it, it ended up doing pretty well. What was the response from people who knew you in real life? I think there was, you know, sort of that initial shock in the beginning because during this time I was still wasn't completely vocal about my mental health. And so a lot of people didn't necessarily see me in that frame. And I think when I put that out, it was it was probably hard for a lot of people to kind of see me in that way because it's like, I think in your head when you're struggling with um, mental illness, like it's, it's very easy to think that no one's there for you. But then when you actually vocalize how you feel, tons of people can actually like get around you and say, hey, I'm actually here for you. And I wish you would have told me. Um, and so that's a lot of the response that I got. But of course, people were super supportive. And they were saying, you know, it's, it's amazing that you decided to talk about this because again no one was talking about it back then it was such a closed off part of our community that you know no one decided to talk about and no one gave any importance to did you ever have a chance to talk about or uh, have your parents read what you wrote no they have not that's actually one part of my life that I keep very compartmentalized, if that makes sense. I I tend to keep that and my writing pretty separate. <laughs> That's totally understandable. I think it's hard. Um, I I struggle with it too, where I, I share some things as I interview folks, and you know things about you know I wish I had, or I guess not wish I had, but you know just to say. A resemblance or a feeling or a wanting of uh, why didn't you do this for me or why weren't you supportive of me in this way? And and I don't know if my parents listen to this or how many of, you know, my friends who listen to this then tell my parents like, oh, Jerry said something on, on his thing. But it's both wanting to have had a different experience, but just forever grateful for everything that they did for me. And I want parents to know out there too that it's not binary that mm -hmm. because your kids say hey why didn't you do this for me that's not saying that everything you did was a failure i think having now being a parent myself it's a little bit easier for me to understand that and it's the same thing of you can love your kids unconditionally but wish for them differently and 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 so i think it's something that many of us in the second, third generation immigrant experience and refugee immigrant experience that we deal with where it's, I love you, but I didn't, I don't agree with the way that you push me to do certain things or discourage certain things. So um, thank you for sharing that. It is still something that I think we as a community um, can do a better job of. Um, it's a relevant topic now because I think um, a lot of us are having uh, different conversations with our parents of please stay the hell home or, you know, don't believe what you read on your chat application with your friends. Um, yeah. That's such a huge problem right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's really funny. There's a meme going around. It's like a degree from WeChat. What's that? What's that? Yeah. What's that med school, right? And it's like, guys, um, 
particularly for you, as you as you studied biology and you work in healthcare, and and many of our friends are literal doctors and nurses and pharmacists, and it's like, really, you're going to believe <laughs> that over the child you raised to go to all these things? Um, but again, it's a process. It's not, you know, it, it is a process. I think uh, it, it's challenging. I cannot imagine, you know, I'm, I'm 36 now, parents of two, and if I had to pick up my life right now and go start life in a brand new country where I don't have the same privileges as I do here um, to start a small business perhaps, or to relearn a new language and culture and also to do what I believe is best for my child. Mm-hmm. I would initially lean into what my definition of success is here in my okay. comfortable world. So we have to understand that our parents use the frame of what success meant when they grew up, which mm-hmm. is home country 20, 30 years ago, because they were just so busy trying to make survival and life for ourselves that right didn't really have the luxury to find out you know what are you know what are the other johnsons doing down the street right what is their like, I, world? Think it's just... the, I think the best way i've heard this framed and i'm not sure who said this but what i what i've heard someone say is that you know our parents generation they were learning to survive where we as a generation were learning how to live at this point so that there's such a huge difference in how you know, our parents grew up their mindset, all of that, and then our mindset now and how we're growing up. It's so different. I think that's the the best way that I've heard someone put it is that, you know, we're trying to learn how to live now because our parents, you know, gave us that sort of platform where it's like, you're already here. You can, you know, go higher from here. Whereas our parents, they were starting probably much like lower than us. Yeah. I mean, if, if one were to visualize, you know, needs hierarchy, right? Like we're, and because, and it makes sense because they did that. So we could climb up the pyramid. Exactly. Sometimes it's really hard for them to understand and empathize that we are higher up because they made it possible. Mm-hmm. And, and so we are, we have the audacity to, dream of things like mental health, wellness, and, um, you know, happiness over grinding it out and doing silly things like writing, like, oh my, like, you know, and writing about our cultural stuff, like, what the heck is that? We, you know, like we didn't, you know, and and it's hard. Um, and, And I think that also is a great frame for what a lot of us are going through right now, which is our parents view race and racism very differently because I think for as long as they will be here in America, Mm -hmm. they see themselves as Indian, Korean, Chinese first living in America, whereas Mm -hmm. we have the audacity to believe that we belong here because we do. And and so, you know, it's, of course, you know, and I think it's the, the framing of if attacks are thrown at us, like, how do you process it? And Mm -hmm. for many of our parents, it's unfortunately, yeah, you know, like, of course, they expect racism. They've Mm -hmm. had it worse when they were growing up. And it's at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, I don't belong here. I'm I'm a visitor. I immigrated here. So therefore, it's a certain amount of it is expected, um, Mm -hmm. which is awful. Um, How, I guess, before we go there, you've written for Brown Brown Girl for about three years now. Yeah. after your initial hit piece, um, what's what's the most fun thing you've ever written? Fun thing. Um, definitely, honestly. So 
when I, obviously when I first started out, I was just writing, you know, mental health pieces. Um, but then I really started kind of getting into interviewing people. And so I, like over the course of these three years, I've been able to interview some of my favorite like artists music wise. And so I definitely would say, um, interviewing one of my favorite singers that that whole experience was amazing because I mean I remember being I think I was like 16 or 17 and I had screenshotted um a reply that he had given me on Twitter (laughs) and I still had that and um you know when I finally like got to interview him I I was like you know, I've held on to this tweet for this many years now. Like, I know this this is super lame and this is such a fangirl moment, but like, I absolutely love you. Like, thank you so much for doing this interview. And it was, it was just such a good experience, you know, to write about, you know, a person that he, I appreciated so much as an artist and, you know, what he puts out into the world. Um, and take a break from writing about stuff that was, for better, for lack of a better term, you know, depressing. Who was it? Um, Amr Sandhu. He's a um, Punjabi singer. Um, he's kind of in the urban desi um, realm of things. So he's he's kind of on like the younger side. So like a lot of um, high school, college kids kind of grew up with listening to some of his music. Very cool. Um, I think you are revealing some secrets of journalism or podcast interviewing, right? Like it, it opens up things that um, you you imagine not to be possible. Oh yeah. Um, it's wild. It's sensible because that's what storytelling is. You know, you provide a platform somebody to tell their story and you invite and if people are willing to join you for the journey, I, I get to have the honor of having you on the show and then learning about you and, um, and, and so many more. Right. So I think, um, that's a, uh, it's, I call it a well-guarded secret. If, if you're listening to this and you know, you feel very passionate about a particular genre, it doesn't have to be Asian American stuff. If you want to, you know, be the, the best, you know, uh, digital marketer in the universe, or if you want to be the best, you know, coffee maker, um, the best way to learn is to learn from people and um, create a show, create a platform for them to tell their stories. And in the process, as you learn from them, you will one day wake up and go, oh, my God, now I am the person that people lean on because I've just through osmosis almost <laughs> just have learned so much. So um, a slight deviation, but um, that's I don't know if, if anybody wants to start their own show. That's why you should do it. Um and it just brings me so much joy, right? Just to meet, um, admittedly, I, South Asian woman in particular, I don't look like it. That's not my life. That's not my lived-in experience. So um, through talking to people like you and Trisha and Sheila, who I've had on the show, it's a really a, an amazing opportunity to uh, just practice empathy and figure out how was it different for somebody else? Because we all have stereotypes and, and have things that we grow up um, you know, thinking about groups of people and, and certainly people have thought that way about the way I look or, you know, other people. So this is great. Um, let's talk about 
the last few weeks. Um, now you're sitting in the editor's chair. You are um, in the position to form some of the conversations and the content that gets gets approved or gets shared. Um, mm-hmm. Let's call it a responsibility, but let's also call it a burden of really making tough decisions on what people read. And you are tasked with having a pulse on the community to figure out what only do they want to hear, but what do they need to hear? Right. Um, Take us through the last few weeks of your own decision-making process and some of the conversations that you've had with the other folks at the editorial level of what do we write about? So, of course, you know, these past few weeks and everything, literally like all our content has, a lot of it at least, has been, you know, geared more towards like the COVID response and how that's affecting um, the South Asian community. And so when we, you know, at this point, like, it's like we have so much COVID-related content. It's like we don't know how to handle it because it's so many pieces coming from every which way. Like, people that are, you know, coming in with, like, um, like personal experiences, um, stuff that's coming out of the actual, like, healthcare world with, like, the development of, like, vaccines and stuff like that um you know it's been such a hard sort of decision for I mean for me I think it's a little bit easier honestly just because I'm the editor of health so for now like this is like booming time for me (laughs) but I think (laughs) for you know other teams it's it's hard because you know, how do you relate certain topics back to, you know, what's going on right now? You know, even, even like breaking news, like even they can somehow relate, you know, back to the current events and everything. And they can have a lot of uh, relevant content right now. But like teams like, you know, I would say like the UK team or parenting, even sometimes they, they kind of struggle in you know, small ways to really get content out that, you know, is lighthearted because everyone like right now is like, watch the news, be depressed, look outside. Oh, can't go outside. It's, it's just a really like hard time to navigate because it's like how much, you know, content that's serious can you put out until like, all the like viewers and listeners and readers literally like just shut their eyes and ears and are like, I can't like, I'm done. What are some of the cool uplifting stories that you are hearing from the community? Because we, as a community, um, Asians in general, and I dare to say South Asians, even more so perhaps is a higher, um, percentage of our population in the healthcare space. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, a healthy amount of us in the small business sector, in the service sector still. So we, we have people in the front lines on both fronts of taking care of the sick, but also taking care of the economy. Mm-hmm. And now, now that I think the initial, I don't want to say the initial, but you know, we are starting now to hear some of the, the good human stuff, the right. donations and the selfless stuff. Um, and is, is there something that um, you'd like to share that you've heard that is, was 
very, very heartwarming for you? Well, one of the things that I heard, especially, you know, being a South Asian creative myself, um, there is a um, foundation that, or not a foundation, but a fundraiser that was put together um, to help South Asian creatives that are currently out of work because of the COVID crisis um, and get them money to get their projects started even remotely. Um, So that for me has been, you know, really, it's a really good thing for me to hear because, you know, I think for the community to already be, you know, starting to grow and then thinking about this whole crisis of just kind of shutting down all of that sort of growth that we have had. I think that was really disheartening, but to hear that, you know, there's people out there that are trying to keep this community going and support even down to like technicians, um, you know, not just like the big, like producers, directors, like big writers, journalists, like not just them, but like also, you know, the people that are playing the small roles in um, creative spaces. So hearing that has really, really made me happy because it's like, there's people that care out there, regardless of, you know, how much bad news we hear. It's, there's good stuff out there. I think we have to focus on the good because as you said, if you, it doesn't matter where you get your news, it's um, fear sells, fear gets people to listen, um, numbers shock, um, you know, so there's, even in times like this, I think there are formulaic decisions being made to how do you maximize views and clicks and um, get people to stay on your channel instead of flipping through. And and so, you know, um, I am also starting to see people shifting their focus to let's support the people that are supporting us and also do our best to try to amplify their stories because that's what this pandemic is doing for humanity i think it's bringing out it gives us chances it gives us a chance to highlight the people that are doing really good but it is also giving many of us a reminder to make decisions that are proactive and and more positive um because we're going to get through this Mm -hmm. um, hopefully in in a shorter amount of time than we hope and with fewer um you know impacted lives and then um as, as minimal as possible um, but, you know, where do we go from here is, is sort of the, the big question. Um, and so we don't know the answers to that. All we can do is uh, for more use it um, with your with your uh, power of words and um, from where I sit with, you know, this platform is to try to put our spotlight as much as possible on the people that are doing the good because yeah. um, the good will the good will last. Um, exactly. Not all of it, unfortunately, not all of it. But we want to, <laughs> we want to create things that will, you know, be here for the long run to make sure that uh, we look back on this as yes, a, a grim time of um, just amazing, or it's just unbelievable proportions, but also an amazing time where like, oh, like that exists today because we went through that. And, right. Um, I decided to change my life because I realized that the things that I thought mattered don't matter actually. So right. I want to end the episode um, the same way that we end all of our episodes. And it is 
a tribute back to the name of the show, the Eurasian Americans. Uh, it's a letter to us, from us, by us, and ultimately for us to hear the words that we wish we had heard, perhaps when you wrote your essay in your fifth grade class, or to a kid who is in fifth grade or even 25 now that needs to hear you say those words, me say those words, because same words, content matters, but context even more so. Mm -hmm. um, so would love to have you help us finish out the show. And so I will start the letter. And if you could finish the letter, dear Asian Americans. There is sound and then there is noise. Both take up space, but only one fills that space. Um, <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is because I think a lot of times it's, it's hard to drown out either one of those. Um, but I think if you think of it in terms of light and brightness, you know, one takes up space, one fills that space. You can choose to focus on either one of those. But sometimes it's just a matter of focusing on the positives to get you through the negatives. And I think that's a huge lesson that I've learned back in fifth grade, back, you know, three years ago when I was applying to be a writer for Brown Girl. That lesson has probably carried over the entire way that you know the entire journey that I've had and I think that's something that I definitely want people to know and hear thank you every day every hour every click every change of the channel we have the power to dictate what we consume if you believe that we are what we eat but we also eat content we also eat music and we also eat words it's a challenging time because we are physically constricted um, at home and it's extra challenging because you're dealing with um, not having some of the things that was a release and an exit point or a stress relief for you. So um, change it up, um, you know, go, go read some things from Brown Girl magazine and you don't have to be a brown girl to read it because there are things that we resonate with because we have similar experiences and even if you don't, um, these are human stories. At the end of it all, um, our skin color, our language, our religion um, does have you know, ways of helping us resonate a little bit more. But if you peel back all the layers, um, we're just two human beings trying to tell human stories. And so um, thank you. This has been an amazing, uplifting conversation for me. I think it's um, hopefully if you're listening, this has brought some uh, sense of calm and um, had you laughing a little bit throughout. Um, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Thank you for what you're doing to amplify the voices of people who uh, traditionally never thought that they could have their own platform. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. I definitely thought, you know, this, this wouldn't be a place where I am now, but thank you so much for, you know, having a place where we can talk about our identities and, you know, be there for each other that's all we can do um, 
we're, we're stuck at home. We have microphones, we have computers. So we will use our special powers to uh, try to bring up the community at least a few notches. Uh, thank you so much. Best of luck to you um, as, as you go through these challenging times in your day job, helping hospital systems get through, but also bringing happiness, positivity, and smiles to the South Asian creative community. Thank you. Thank you. That was a really great conversation. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, if that show resonated with you, if my conversation with Vaidehi and her work at Brown Girl Magazine resonated with you, please do take a moment to share this episode and share the show with a friend or two. Uh, that does really mean a lot for us to uh, get the show out there as much as we can. Like us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Asian Americans. And there you'll also find ways to subscribe to the show and for you to apply to come on the show yourself if you would like to share your own story. Wherever you may be, please be safe, please be healthy. And until next time, this has been your host, Jerry Wan.